Hi, I'm Scott Lacey, and this is Talking Documentary. Joe Brandmeier is a veteran of marriage. He has lived through the ups and downs of our favorite institution and even saw his own relationship arrive at the brink of no longer working. He and his wife ultimately figured things out, but Brandmeier emerged from that crisis with a renewed fascination for modern marriages. He was curious about why they work and sometimes don't work and why so many of us keep coming back for more. Joe Brandmeier is also a veteran filmmaker and storyteller. Brandmeier toted his camera around homes in the upper Midwest in quest of one answer. What is this thing we call marriage? He talked to married couples of all ages and all backgrounds, and he emerged with his 2016 film, I Do. It's an authentic and uplifting look at marriage through the eyes of married couples themselves. Brandmeier joins me today from Minneapolis. Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So I want to ask you about the movie. Um, a movie like this cannot succeed without some really fun and engaging couples. I'm curious, how did you find them and what were you looking for? Uh, that's a great question. Yeah, no, I, I have to say, I just watched the trailer for the first time in a little bit and I literally laughed out loud um, because I hadn't seen it for a while. And the, the, the reason being is because the couples are so great. So um, the one thing that was important before I started looking was I didn't want to know them, right? Because I have a big family um, and I didn't want to, you know, talk to my family or my brothers or relatives or anything like that. So that was the first thing. I didn't want to know them. Um, second was, okay, where do we find these kind of people that that either have been married or are thinking about married, marriage or, you know, maybe they're divorced. Maybe they have some, some other kind of story. Um, and I was looking for all types. Um, so we did a couple things. My wife has been a, a, an anchor, excuse me, a host on HGTV. So she's got a, a big social media following. So we kind of put a little teaser out there, like a short little 15, 30 second teaser of what we were trying to do on her social media and said, we're looking for people. In addition to that, there's a company or a, a show called Twin Cities Live here in, in Minneapolis. And I talked to the host on that show, went on there and said, this is what we're doing. Um, we're looking for people. And then I have a brother in Chicago um, who's been in the radio world for many, many years. And I went on his radio show and said the same thing. So it was a combination of social media, local talk show, and then my brother's radio show. And we just kind of threw out what we were looking for. Um, and the responses were, were unbelievable. I mean, I was so surprised. And they came from all over the country. Um, you know, as far as, you know, their stories and what they are and who they are and where they are. So what I did was I kind of, I've made phone calls, right? And when I call these people, um, I don't want to get too involved. Um, and I just kind of get a brief overview of who they are. If they got too political, I would say thanks, but no thanks. If they got too religious or too, if they were angry, or if they wanted to kill their spouse or, you know, whatever, I would kind of avoid them. Um, but most of them were just like me. They were just pure curious and trying to figure out, should I get married? I've been married. How do I stay married? Is, is, you know, is monogamy, you know, a reality, all, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it was kind of a narrowing it down. And then uh, I didn't ask too many questions on the phone because I didn't want to know too much. You know how it is, because obviously you have a documentary background. You just you don't want it all to come out on the phone and then never on the camera. So then I threw my cameras, I you know, because of my production background, I had cameras. So I tossed them in the car and and I had this big dream of going from coast to coast and I'm going to interview everybody. But I never made it out of the Midwest because there were just so many great people. So 
they were found in, you know, the Twin Cities area, in Wisconsin, in Chicago, and then a couple other little nearby locations in the Midwest. That's that's kind of the process. So how many people did you wind up auditioning? You know, it's funny because I think it was somewhere in the 18 to 20 couples. Um, and most of them um, made it. Um, just because they were, they were so great and they're so honest and they, and I mean, you got to remember, I, they let me into their homes with hardly even know who, knowing who I was. They may have known my wife or they may have known somebody else or my brother or whatever, but you know, they let me into their home and we were talking, you know, serious things about relationships, about sex, about, um, you know, all kinds of different things. Um, keeping the romance alive. And, you know, a, one person, you know, talked about her husband, you know, hanging himself and, you know, in, in the garage because of, you know, drugs and stuff. So, I mean, they all of a sudden they just opened up. So I, I think it, it was a matter of um, most of them, I would say 95% of them remained um, in the piece. And then there was a couple that just went, you know, way too far one way or the other. Cause like I said, I didn't want to get political um, or if they were just angry at life, I didn't, I didn't want to put that in. And then there were one or two that I literally found, so I was driving northern Minnesota. I came across the the couple who was on the pier. I don't know if you remember them, but there was an older couple on the pier and they were fishing. And I just kind of pulled over and just started to talk to them. And by the time I put the camera away, they were gone. So to this day, if you look at the credits, they have no last name. They're just the couple on the pier um, because I didn't even know who they were. Um, but besides them, everybody else kind of made it into the piece. So how did you know that they would translate to camera from a phone conversation? Well, you know, that, that world of social media that we have, um, it was pretty easy to, to find everybody online, unfortunately, in, in that not in a crazy, uh, scary, creepy, um, you know, stalking way. But, you know, you can find anybody. I mean, so when, it, when they sent us stuff, that's the other thing I asked for. If they were serious, I said, can you send me a picture of your, your wedding picture or a picture of you guys, you know, you know, being engaged or a picture of you, you know, whatever. Um, and either they'd send me to their Facebook page or they would actually send me a picture. Um, so between the Facebook page or the, you know, stuff they sent me and then a brief phone conversation, it, it was pretty easy to, to tell who they were pretty quickly. And most of them were just so darn fun and so darn sweet. And especially the older couple who had been married for, you know, 73 years. I mean, it was, it was just amazing. So that, that part was pretty easy. As a subject, you may have tackled one of the biggest, broadest subjects you can find. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you, how do you even sort of find your focal point? What was your thought process there? That's a great question because we, we joked about that, you know, kind of, cause you could go in so many directions and go the cost of a wedding, you know, you could go into, uh, you know, just, just the craziness of, you know, $60,000 wedding versus, you know, this, you can go into, you know, same sex marriages versus this, or, you know, there's so many different avenues you can go. So the process that I had was one, which I've mentioned already, I didn't want to get political. I didn't want to get religious and I didn't want to get angry. So that was, that was kind of the first thing. Um, and then, um, with the help, cause my wife is a huge part of these things because she's such a great storyteller. Um, and she was great with story structure. I was really lost after hours and hours and hours of, of going through interviews and whatever else. And that's why we kind of came up with 
the initial the categories which you see in there um it was the initial the initial attraction what was the initial attraction then it was dating then it was um proposal then it was marriage then it was life after marriage then it was um you know divorce or kids divorce and then kind of a wrap up so when i went back and looked at some of the interviews if this couple was talking about you know, when they first met, I would take that bite and I, <clears throat> excuse me, I would throw that into, you know, the attraction category. And then if they talked about, you know, we got divorced because he was cheating, then that would go over into that category. So once I found those categories, then when I went back to the interviews, it was really easy to go, okay, this is where I want it to fit. And if they drifted from that category, then I, then I moved on to something else. And then in, to introduce the categories, I just kind of did it in a fun way because I love humor and I use kids, young kids. And I sat and I talked to young kids about dating, about marriage, about proposals, about weddings, about, you know, and they kind of led us into each of the categories. So every time you saw the kids, it meant we were going into a new category. Yeah. The, the kids were genius, not oh, only because the, the kids themselves were that could have been really trite and maybe even annoying, but the kids were so cute yeah. and they, they just had such a natural buoyancy on, on film. And, and it reminded me a little bit of the technique and when Harry met Sally, how yeah. he had these little flashpoints. Yep. Yep. And that's, and that's a really good point too, because one of the reasons, you know, obviously again, you do documentaries and the people listening do documentaries, they know these are tough to get up and running. So there's a couple reasons why I kept a two shot uh, for a number of reasons. One, because I didn't have a big crew. <laughs> that was, that was part of it. But really creatively, I kept a two shot for the bulk of it because you saw the, re the um, relationship between the couple on the two shot. If I kept cutting to a medium shot of the spouse talking or the husband talking or the boyfriend talking, then you never really got to feel the relationship or the roll of the eyes or the laughter or the, you know, you know, you know, admiration of the other spouse or the other, you know, person in the relationship when I cut it up. So I kept it as a two shot. And even when I got to the divorce person and the person who lost her husband, I kept a two shot. So the right frame was still empty, like it was still missing somebody. So that, that was, that was really important. So it was a combination of seeing their relationship, keeping the two shot, and then the kids kind of kept that same way. That's why I kept them as a two shot when they came in. So it was all about relationships. Yeah, that's true. There was kind of an unspoken dynamic when one spouse is speaking, the other one's listening. You can, you could see how much they actually cared for each other. One, there was one couple and I forget which one, when he talked, she just watched him so intently yeah, and yeah. with such, such love and appreciation. And that told a story all of its own. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think so too. And that's kind of, cause in, in some ways people are like, why don't you cut it up? Why don't you go to B-roll? Why don't you? And I'm like, well, you know, I could, but they're so, um, you know, cause you, I mean, ultimately like the question you asked earlier is, I mean, ultimately you're casting, right? I mean, you are casting for this thing. Um, and they were such interesting people that it that you didn't need to cut away from them, right? I mean, and th so the way I kept the pacing going was the graphics, the categories, the kids, and cutting back and forth from couples. That's how I kept the pacing going. Instead of cutting up the couples, I cut in other couples, and then the categories, you know, kept things moving. So, yeah, they were, they were great, and especially when you're talking about you know toilet paper with. The first couple, Ray and Helen, you know, they talked about the toilet paper and, and just, you know, simple things like that. 
So I would be remiss not to ask you about your own marriage. You're a longtime married guy. And I would imagine in some ways, maybe that are obvious and maybe not so obvious, that got brought into the concept and execution of the film. Oh, absolutely. It's like I said before, any, and again, this is my opinion, but any good documentary has to have curiosity. I mean, you have to be curious about something or passionate about something. And I hate, you know, I don't want to throw that word around too much, but I mean, it was the pure curiosity. It all started with me going, how do people stay together? Because I had been married for so long um, and many, many years. And it's like, I'm, I can't figure out why they get married, how they stay together so long. How do they keep their romance, you know, going? How do they keep things interesting? You know, what happens when kids come in, into play? Um, and, you know, like any marriage, we had our ups and downs. And there was one moment, and you probably saw it in the film, where, you know, I think it was like kind of at a halfway point, somewhere in that 13 year mark, somewhere in there. Um, you know, we, we were just exhausted. It wasn't, you know, another woman or another uh, man or anything like that. We were just exhausted. Um, and I remember my bags were packed and I was ready to walk out the door and say, okay, I can't do this anymore. And she was at the top of the stairs, a small staircase, a few steps. I was at the bottom bags packed and she looked at me and she said, you know, we are ultimately better together than we are apart. Right. And that kind of just really rung a bell and going, and I wanted to find out why, why we're better together than we are apart, because that's kind of what ended up keeping us together, that comment. Um, and that was kind of the basis of, of the documentary. It's going like, you know, if you as a couple can go home at night and say, well, ultimately we are better together. She makes me better. And I think I might make her better. Um, you know, and that's kind of driving the whole documentary. So I want to ask about your role in the film. Your interviewing style is incredibly animated and engaged. You certainly lend your own presence. Um, tell me how you kind of curated your own involvement on screen in the film. You know, it, it's it's funny because that's that budget thing again, right? You know, I would love to have had, you know, a, a reversal shot or a cutaway or whatever else. But it, it, I, I, I hate being on camera, right? I've been behind the camera as a producer, director, as a DP for, you know, a million years. So I love being behind the camera. And this is not one of the things that I like to do. And my wife kind of was like, hey, this is your project. You know, you got to put yourself out there. So otherwise nobody can connect to what what you're trying to do. It's your story. It's your curiosity. So I brought myself into it really just as a couple shots here and there and then a couple driving shots. Um but my style was simply, like I said, is, is normally when I do productions, whether it's a multi-camera thing for broadcast specials or a music video or whatever it might be, and I work with the A-list artists, um, I would say 80% is pre-production, right? So 80% pre-production, 10% shoot, 10% edit. With this and the last couple documentaries I did, it was completely opposite. It was like... I'm, I know what I want to do. So there's roughly 10% of an outline of what I want to do. I know what I'm going for. But like I mentioned before, I didn't want to know these people and my curiosity was driving it. So when I sat down, I was really curious, right? I didn't have a prepared questions. I didn't have any of that kind of stuff. I knew in my head where I wanted to go. And I let them take me in different places sometimes too. And I think once they understood that that I was sincere and I was, you know, kind of really curious, they let their guard down and we kind of forgot about the cameras. And then we started talking. I mean, this one woman started talking about details on the wife, excuse me, her husband cheating on her, you know, and the other one talked about, you know, the death of her husband and, and, you know, and other people are talking about how they kept romance alive and, and all this crazy stuff 
you know, started just to come out because I was open and I was curious and I was sincere. And so I just brought myself in just enough to, to let people know it's my story and my curiosity. But then I got out of the way and let, let the couples be the heroes. So you're a veteran director and producer and you said DP and many other roles. You touch a little bit on the inverted sort of progression of filming. How is this project different in other ways for you? Because there's a difference certainly between doing somebody else's creative work, even though you lend your own creative touch to it, and creating your own thing from front to back. It's a Joe Brandmeier production. Like, how is that different for you? Well, the approval time is a lot quicker. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so that's the first thing. Um, you know, once, it, it, you know, that's, that's really it because it's, it's really tough because, you, you know, it's your thing. And, and again, Joan, like I said, my wife, Joan is, is a huge help because she's very creative and she's been in the business for a long time and she's great at storytelling and story structure. So we had a few moments, you know, during this thing where we kind of went, I don't want to say nose to nose, but we had disagreements. And I kept thinking, oh, I think I'm done. And she's like, you're not done. You really need to do more. And, and so, so that kind of personal thing was, was really stressful in a way because I was too close to it and she wanted to help move it along. And so even with that, um, we kind of struggled, you know, with that relationship. But the biggest difference, I think, is that it's so personal, you know? I mean, that's kind of the big thing, you know, because you can do somebody else's project and say, hey, I, you know, I know what you want and I'm going to bring this, this to life and you can kind of make them happy. But when it's this personal, I literally thought maybe six people outside my family might see this, maybe 10 people, you know, outside of my family. And, and when I went into it, I didn't really care because it was free therapy for me, like I've said. So that, that was really important. I just didn't care. And then because of that, the honesty came out, the authentic nature of it came out. And that's something that you can't do with somebody else's project, right? That's what kind of gave it wings for a cliche line. And, and, you know, next thing you know, I'm at a film festival and we sold out, you know, four nights at a film festival and we got best documentary. And then it opens up in Canada and it, you know, plays at Singapore and, and all these crazy things are happening when I just literally am not, not trying to be cute thinking like, you know, maybe it, this could be a video for my family to watch. So I think that's it. The personal thing is, is, is the, the biggest difference. And of course, funding, you know, and I know we're going to get to funding sometime in this conversation, but, you know, somebody else pays for their project. And, you know, ultimately, you know, we moving pictures, my company moving pictures uh, paid for this project. Ultimately, you're, you're right. That was two questions down. Uh, <laughs> e e I knew it was coming. It always does. So economics of documentary. First, I want to dig in uh, into the weeds a little bit here. And this is a little bit of a selfish question because I'm going to be going on the road to do some interviews for my own project. This seems to be something you shot fairly lightweight. What did you learn about the logistics of, you know, doing camera and sound, running the interview, little set dressage? How did that work for you? <laughs> you know, I'm laughing right now because I can hear my wife because she was so tired of me complaining because I, you know, again, humbled and I've been fortunate to work on projects that have great crews, right? We have a sound guy and we have this and we have a DPs and we have, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that was a pro and a con. And the, the con part of it is that there was more struggle because of what you just described. Um, the pro part of it is 
it allowed the, the couples to open up and feel more comfortable. Because if I would have walked in their house with a six or seven person crew and PAs and, you know, makeup coming in and whatever else, I don't think I would have gotten what I got. So on one end, it's really great because you have a smaller footprint and the person you are interviewing feels more comfortable and will eventually, if you do your job right, will forget that the cameras are there. On the technical side, on the logistics side, it was really tough sometimes. Um, and that's why I left because, you know, my wife was tired of me saying, man, if I could have just had this, if I could have had one more person, if I could have had, you know, another audio person or, you know, blah, 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 you know, that would have been great. So I, I think you got to find the fine line where, you got to put something out there that's technically good, that has that looks decent and sounds decent. Because, as you know, audio is huge. If you have bad audio, you're going to lose audiences really fast. So, logistically, you got to have a good picture and you got to have a good and good sound somehow. I don't know how you do it, but if you if you don't have the budget to have a three and four and five person crew, then you got to really look at your equipment. You know, I love prime lenses. I'm a big fan of prime lenses. So I, I try to shoot with prime lenses as often as possible. And that really helps the process um, just because it has a great look. And the other thing too, is when you saw these couples for this one, but I've, I've done a couple other documentaries, which are a little different, but for this one, I put them in a location that kind of screamed who they were. You know what I mean? So right away you saw them, you know, in a location that felt like, like the older couple around the table. I mean, it was like doilies on the table and it was like bad wallpaper in the background and, and, you know, just things that just said, you know, big picture of Jesus up on the wall in the background. It just said like, this is your grandma's house. Right. So, so location, you know, is huge. Um, good sound, good pictures, and then find that happy medium where you're not, you know, you're still making the person you're interviewing comfortable. Does that make sense? I don't know if that made sense. Oh, completely. I'm I'm curious. So like on average, was it, I think I saw one shot where there was a sound guy. I'm guessing you were running one or two. Yeah, we had, I, I, had, I had some days I had sound and a second camera and then some days I just had sound and then I always had a GoPro. So if, if all else fail, I would go to the wide side of the GoPro and I only had to use it a few times throughout the piece. Um, but everything else was on a, a pretty decent camera and with prime lenses, but yeah, it's, you know, you kind of, you, you kind of do what you can, right. But you, you get, it's that fine line again, you know I mean? Cause I've seen documentaries that just look like crap, but they have really great content. And because the quality is so poor, um, it's gotta be really, you know, high end content. Right. And Joan and I talk about this all the time where I will easily, be okay with handheld and a little dim lighting or a hallway lighting if there's a great moment happening in the frame. But if you have time to sit down and have a conversation, you know, it can't be a silhouette plastered against a bright window with scratchy sound or, you know what I mean? It's like, that's, there's no excuse for that, I guess. Well, there's probably excuse, but. There are a lot of trends in documentary and some of them I don't love as much, but I do think that this trend toward showing more of the sausage making in frame um, yeah. or at least cutting away. I think it actually is quite effective in letting the audience understand the context. So when you cut to the GoPro, for me, it was, it made the film better because I made it a little more intimate, a little more honest, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's it. But that's, that's the criteria though. And that's why when I, I go back to the criteria of the sound bites that I picked. So once in my head, I got, okay, 
attraction, dating, proposal, marriage, kids, you know, once I got that feel, then I knew when I started listening, going, okay, that's a great spot for attraction. This is a great spot for the proposal. It's the same, it's the same thing with the shots. I literally just had this conversation before we started talking because I'm working on another documentary. And I said, I'm happy to look at additional footage if the footage is great and if it moves the story along. If it moves the story along and it's good footage, then yeah, of course we should put it in there. But if if you're just doing something to do something and it doesn't move the story along and it doesn't have a purpose, um, and I know every shot doesn't have a purpose, I get that, but even with B-roll, you should still be telling a story, right? And even with a location of the interview, you should still be telling a story. Where did you put that couple or where did you put that person? If that person, you know, is a whatever, uh, a music guy, then, you know, where's, where's he sitting? If, if he's an astronaut, you know, where's he sitting, you know, or if he's, you know, whatever part he's playing in your documentary, you got to get a feel for, you know, where that location is. So I'm a strong believer of location and, and, you know, putting, like I said, the two shot before, I mean, I just kept a two shot because I felt for this, it worked, but that doesn't mean it's right or wrong. That's the beauty of today. Right. I mean, there is really no right or wrong. It's just what, what makes sense to you and what feels good. I think that was the right decision. I don't know that I was focused on it in the moment, but when I reflect, I do think that was the invisible character, which was the couple and the frame together. Um, you mentioned the primes. If I could ask you a little bit about gear, um, because sure. it is a beautifully shot film. Um, what were you shooting on? And tell me more about the the primes and what focal lengths you were working at. I've been, I've been, um, I have this camera that I bought, um, a while ago, a, a Canon C300. Um, it's a great, it's a great, great camera for documentaries. Um, but it, it's, it comes up a little bit when you start using the primes and the focal lengths were all over the place. Um, anywhere from, you know, prime 135 to the wide shots for some of the couples were a 35 millimeter. One was 55 millimeter. Um, but one of my favorite lenses is, is the prime 135. Just because it's got that, you know, I really love the kind of the long lens autofocus depth or shallow depth of field with kind of the background blown out a little bit in whites. Um, and I use that a lot for B-roll. Um, and then the driving stuff, we had a, um, a really great high-end uh, GoPro that we mounted to the car that we did some of the the driving shots. And it just, I mean, I was blown away by, by some of those driving shots and how they looked. I was kind of impressed. So, I mean, there's a lot of really cool little GoPros out there that you can mount on cars for driving shots, or you can put in crazy places. So this, this leads very naturally into the, the conversation about economics, which <laughs> we know are pretty daunting in documentary. I'm curious, how much did you spend in making this film and what was your strategy to recoup the investment? Well, that is a great question. I'm not going to get into details on the actual cost, but let's let's say this: the, the funding is huge. I mean, funding is 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 the the one thing that every documentary person I talk to at all the film festivals, no matter where you are, I mean, it, it's the question right out of the gate. And I don't know if you ever saw there was an old documentary out there called uh, "Seduced and Abandoned." I don't know if you ever heard of it, but it's several years old. It's with Alec Baldwin. Um, called Seduced and Abandoned. And it's about them going to Cannes to, to raise money for a film. So they're doing a documentary on them doing doc, right, trying to raise money for a film. Um, <laughs> and you, you just look at the pain of all the people in the, in the business just trying to fund movies. So, um, as far as, as far as the number, I mean, obviously it was done as cheap as possible, but if you were to put a price on, you know, my time and Joan's time and cameras and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff, then, you know, it would probably be over six figures. 
um, easily. But it was it was fairly it was fairly tight in as far as the budget and stuff. Um, and as far as the getting my money back, it was a couple ways. It was um, it's on Prime now, which um, continues to make money every month um, with people watching it. You know, I, I get that royalty that comes in. It broadcasts several times on PBS. Um, so I got money back on the PBS side of things. Um, and then there was one or two other things, private showings that we did at universities um, that made small amounts of, of money to go in and present into the educational world, um, in the therapy world and family education. So it was a combination of those things. And so whatever your documentary is, somebody out there can connect to it. You know, whether it's um, a hospital or medical or a Photoshop or a cause marketing or whatever it is, whatever it is that you're doing, there's a way to um, find somebody who might support that in some form or fashion. So the, the drag is, is that it's that chicken and the egg thing is y- you want to do a treatment and you want to do a trailer, but usually your trailer can't be complete until you actually start shooting. So then it's tough to do a trailer with a company and do a pitch and, you know, I call it tap dancing and tap dance to raise money and funds because you really don't have the final product. So you, you play this little game back and forth. So past um, documentaries help, past work helps. Um, but, you know, no matter what you do, you're you're starting from scratch almost every time and you're knocking on doors. But I, I guarantee you that there's people out there that that will sponsor stuff and, and help stuff, even if it's not the full documentary, just enough to to get it going. And, and as you know, there's 200,000 channels out there. So people are looking for programming. So I think it's just it's it's find the right person, the right company, the right investor that matches what you're trying to do. Yeah, and Amazon Prime is great, though. I mean, I, I think they're really great. And plus, there's so many people that have Amazon Prime now. So, it, you know, it just it just pops right up with all – I mean, it's sitting next to, you know, A Star is Born and, and a couple of the other, one, other ones. And I'm like, wow. You know, so it's kind of sitting in the same – while you're searching for something, it pops up right next to some of the other ones. So that's kind of a big deal. And, and I call it mail money, um, meaning like you go to the mail and, and – you know, there's a royalty check. So if you do enough of them, you know, right now I'm, I'm starting my third one. Um, plus I, I still do other projects, which are revenue projects. Um, you know, then you, then you start to, you know, kind of make a difference. And for me, and again, it, money is always the third or fourth thing. I mean, when I look at a project, a project always has to be, what is the project? And, and if it's if it's mine, then what's you know what's my connection to it? What's my personal connection to it? What's my personal curiosity to it? Um, and then after that is you know is it is there a purpose to it? Is it purposeful? Will it make a difference in the world? Will it put something positive out there? Because you're going to see my stuff, and it's it's not hardcore negative, you know, war, you know, this person screaming or yelling. I mean, we have enough of that, so I try to just find something that makes me happy and put some kind of positive message out there. Um, and then you go, oh, by the way, there's a, could, could be money involved. Then I go, well, that's kind of cool. So it's kind of a process of, of what is it? Who's involved? Is there a purpose to it? And oh, by the way, you can make some money. Great. Okay. Then I'll, then I'll look at it and then I'll do it. So let's help you out a little bit there as well. So you followed up, I do with a documentary short called small town robot, which Mm -hmm. seems quite intriguing. I have not seen it yet. Can you tell me about that one? Yeah, that I, that was another one that just, it was a snowy day in April. <laughs> um, and we were just sitting around reading the paper, the local paper here in Minneapolis. 
And there was a small story in there about this town in northern Minnesota called Greenbush. It's a town of like 700 people. And they were creating these robots from a program called First Robotics. It's an international program. Um, and they were competing with people around the world and, and winning. I mean, winning these huge national, international uh, contests. And it just was such a great David and Goliath story. And for some reason, it caught my attention. And I made it literally on Sunday. I read the thing. And this is one of those pre-production things. I read the article on Sunday. I made calls that day to some of the people that were in the article um, found them and got them on Sunday. And on Tuesday, I was in my car driving seven hours to the top of basically Minnesota near the like few miles from the Canadian border talking to these people. And I thought I'd be up there for a day or so just doing some research. And I stayed up there for five days and we interviewed a bunch of people and everybody I talked to, the story just got better and better. And then I found out that they were right in the middle um, and they were going to Detroit for the international championship, the robotics championship. And I'm like, oh, shoot, I got to follow them to Detroit now. Um, so that one had a really clean start at point A and end at point B, which was a championship. And that's kind of the main reason I did it. I, I didn't, I didn't want to pick up something that I was going to follow for two years. I just, I wasn't there. We didn't have the finances. You know, there's a couple other companies that, that may have gotten involved. And so that one was just a great story and really simple. It couldn't be any more simple than, than, you know, what it was, but it just had, you know, it had just fun stuff. That is a, another example of the inverted pre-production pyramid, if you yeah, will. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. 48 hours. That's quite a turnaround. Yeah, um, it was, it's weird. And again, you know, like I said, um, you know, that, that 80% pre-production is, is a normal thing for me when, you know, for large projects, but that's kind of fun though. In some ways I, I kind of like that. You know what I mean? I, I like, I mean, not having to think and just go with your heart because sometimes, man, your heart and the curiosity really drives you to the right places. You know, and you can overthink and you can overanalyze, you can over, you know, meet about it. Um, you can wait until somebody pays for it and sometimes the moment is gone. So at the bare minimum, minimum, I, I, I just start, you know, you just start doing something, right? If it's a phone call, make a phone call. If it's a, you know, article, read an article. If it's research, do some research, you know, just start doing something. And that usually leads you to the next thing. And eventually you're going to know whether it's like, oh, I don't want to go any farther. Or like I said, I was up there and you got to remember, I was up there in the middle of nowhere and they were like, oh yeah, in a few days we're going to be in Detroit. And I'm like, oh man, I got to go to Detroit, you know? So it, it was just that step led me to this step, led me to that step, led me to Detroit. And then we didn't have an ending. And my wife, again, being, you know, the brilliant um, <laughs> storyteller she is, said, you don't have an ending. I mean, but now they're graduating. They were graduating. I'm like, well, I have to go up for graduation. So half of the team that was taking part of that were graduating and moving on to college. So they learned all these great concepts about working together and being part of a team and and not trying to compete against other people, but, you know, trying to figure out how to work you know, in the same world. So they were taking that into their new life, into into the world of college and, and wherever else they were going. So that was how we ended it. We went back up there for graduation. So, I mean, with any doc, I mean, just start, do something, just start. I would say that that's the best way to make a film the way you're doing it. And maybe the reason it doesn't work that way in the professional world is that the most expensive time is crew time, right? So sure. it's just probably cost prohibitive to make a documentary in that fashion if you've got, you know, a sound guy and a DP and an AD and all these other people. So 
in your case, you've got you and your wife and that time expanded out, I guess, is something that you can make work. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, that's why I, I, I say I'm humbly and humble and, and I'm, I'm fortunate, you know, because of that. And, you know, now a lot of people have obviously access to Adobe Premiere Pro and they can edit and, you know, do all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of ways to make things come to life. But, you know, it may be silly, old fashioned, but I still believe content is king. If it's a good story, if it's a good song, if it's a good whatever, you know, people will find you and you'll you'll figure out a way how to how to do it, you know, how to tell the story. So if there's something there already, you know, people will find it. So I got to ask you, because I know you've got something you're working on now. What is it? And can you talk about it? Sure, absolutely. It's called uh, His Nature. It's it's with Thomas D. Mangelson. Um, he's a nature and wildlife photographer, world renowned, been doing it for, for many, many years. And it's it's about nature and the importance of our connection to nature as seen through his life and lens, because he has an amazing life. Um, and as a wildlife photographer and as a nature photographer, he's just done amazing stuff and o- over the years and, and is a big advocate for all kinds of stuff. So it's about nature, our connection with nature through his life and lens. But it also talks about his love affair with this famous grizzly bear called 399. If you just go type in a grizzly bear 399, you'll get all kinds of articles that pop up. This is a, it's a famous bear outside the Teton Parks. Um, and he has been following this bear, which is now kind of a, a, a international celebrity, um, because she's been around for 25 years and she's had 17 cubs. Um, so it, it's just, just great story. So it's a combination of, of beauty, of nature, his relationship with people like Jane Goodall. And it's one of those stories which, you know, I've been kind of shooting for about eight or nine months now, and we're getting close to a rough cut, and we're going to have kind of a better handle on where we're at and what has to happen. But it's it's kind of a really cool story. And that's the one that that because of the story and because of the nature of it, there are several different people that we're talking to about, you know, potential funding. And that one is going to be much, much different from Small Town Robot and certainly much different from I Do. But it all it started with me going to him because I'm a huge fan of of northern Wisconsin and northern Minnesota and up north. I have a book called Up North. So I saw one of his galleries in Omaha a while ago. And since I, I was in there, I was just mesmerized by some of his photos and his story and his history. And so I went out to him and, and I pitched him. I kind of tap danced. I call it tap dancing. I said, hey, I'd love to you know, do this documentary and this is what I want to do. And I said, it's not just a documentary about you, but it's about nature and the importance of connections with nature, especially now. And it was, it's, it's been a slow build. It's been a slow build, but you know, just really cool stuff has been happening. So again, pure curiosity, that's how it started. So I'd like to close by going back to something you mentioned earlier, because I love this couple, the fishing couple. Yeah. yeah. Can you, Tell the story of how you found them and how you won their trust, because these are the the saltiest of the salt of the earth <laughs> right. that you'll ever meet. And the fact that you got them so apparently comfortable on camera is a feat that I just don't fully comprehend. So tell me that story. Well, you know, first of all, thank you. Um, I have to say, you know, I love, love, love those guys. 
I was driving, literally, I was doing a B-roll with, with a GoPro. I had the GoPro mounted on the front of the car, and I was just driving around, right, in and out of sunsets and sunrises and whatever else. And I turned the corner of this park. It's in northern Minnesota, a couple hours from my house. And I, as I turned the corner, they were just sitting there. It was early morning, the only two on the pier. And I'm, a, you know, like I said, up north, and I like to fish. So, obviously, there's a couple fishing on a pier up north curiosity, I got to stop, right? So I stopped and I I got out and I just sat there on the pier and we talked about fishing. We talked about what I was doing. We talked about, um, you know, what they were doing. So I sat on the pier and, and fished with them for a little bit. And then I said, hey, would you guys mind, you know, just tell me your story, you know, on camera? And they're like, yeah, sure. So I got the camera and I set it up again as a two shot. And then I started talking to them. And I, I think it was that same thing where they knew that I wasn't trying to make fun of them because they were, you know, this unique couple. And I think they knew that I was sincere just from hanging out with them for that little bit. And then once they got comfortable with the camera, you know, then I just started asking all kinds of stuff. And, and you know. That's why, I mean, that's a good example because she, you know, when I talked about keeping the romance alive, you know, and um, they laughed at that. And then out of the blue, yeah, we talked about kids. I said, did you ever have, you know, do you have kids? And and she got really sad and quiet. And I don't know if you heard that part, but she talked about, nah, it just wasn't in the works for us. And she started talking about that and how she couldn't have kids. And I'm like, wow. You know, so I think if people see your sincere and you're not trying to make fun of them or trying to be whatever. I, I don't know, man. I, I think people will open up and they want to open up and they want to talk about it. Um, and like I said, by the time I, I'm not exaggerating, by the time I took the camera, because I was going to come back, by the time I took the camera back to my car, which was only across the street, and loaded everything back in and came back, they were gone. And I never got their last name. So it's like, um, so I would go, I went back up there when the documentary came out and there was a cafe, a local cafe there, which we've gone to. And I went in there and I talked to a bunch of people in there and, and I said, well, if you see them, tell them it's going to be on PBS next week and you know that kind of stuff. So, but th that was it. Just, just be honest. Yeah. I feel like that's such a filmmaker's lesson about being in the moment, seeing the world around you and then engaging with it in a uh, sincere and authentic way. It's huge. It's huge, man. Because I'm telling you, you can, and again, like this, this documentary I'm working on now, I mean, we had script and we had treatments and we had script outline and we, you know, but at the end of the, the proposal, I put, you know, I put it literally on the end of the proposal, I have footnote. I, um, I don't know the exact words, but something to the effect of, I hold the, the truth that this may lead us away from this treatment, depending on what happens on, you know, location and who we bump into or whatever else. I mean, there were better words than that, but it's basically saying is, Hey, this is what we're proposing, but the doc might lead us somewhere else. But at least we know, you know, where we want to go back to. Right. So if, if I drift too far, I know the outline is there and I know I want to come back to that, you know, to that, um, to that main outline. But yeah, you got to be open and, 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 you know, doing all these film festivals. I was in the Bahamas with a bunch of people. There was a bunch of directors in a little bus on the way to an event. And, you know, I love, love, love those film festivals because you start to talk to other directors and producers and how did you get your film done? And, you know, all those kind of conversations. And this one guy on the way there said he was a young kid 
And he said, um, I'm, I'm doing this documentary on, I can't remember what it was. It was like some kind of dance thing that he, he found and he thought it was really cool and really hip and really, really hot. He goes, it was really hot right now. And I asked him, well, what's your interest in it? Do you do it? Do you have family who do it? And, you know, how do you, what's your interest? Do you know somebody who goes, no, nah, I don't know anybody. I just read an article and they said it was really hot right now. And I'm thinking to myself, that doc is never going to go anywhere, you know, <laughs> because he just read an article that said it's going to be hot. And that's what he, he went for. He had no interest in it, no curiosity in it. And again, you know what it's like, if it's hot now, by the time this documentary comes out and you shoot and you edit and you promote and you, I mean, it could be two years and it's not going to be hot anymore. So I, I, the only reason I bring it up is because it's a good example of if you don't have interest, if you don't have curiosity, if you don't have passion in some form or fashion, that doc will never get made because you live with this thing. Well, Joe, thank you so much. You are a delightful guy and <laughs> it comes through in your films and it comes through in talking to you. I will definitely be on the lookout for everything you do from this point forward. Thank you for the time, man. Now, man, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. And have a awesome day and happy everything. Thanks to Joe Brandmeier. His film, I Do, can be seen on Amazon Prime Video. Join me next week when I talk to Justin Shine. He befriended an aging yippie struggling with age and the loss of relevance. But when Shine set out to make a film about him, he got a surprise that tested his mettle as a filmmaker and his beliefs as a human being. That's next time on Talking Documentary. See you soon. Hey, you. You look like you're in need of a vacation. A Friday Island vacation where you get to hear about the things you enjoy. Here, we talk about everyone's favorite movies, TV shows, video games, and more. We keep things pretty laid back here, but we also do our research. We've got trivia, questions about potholes, some hilariously bad reviews, and more. New episodes go up every Friday, obviously. So come on and join Neil and I over on Friday Island Podcast, available wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you there. Texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting rules for recurring automated text marketing messages. Message data rates may apply. Reply stop, stop, stop. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. My first grader was behind in reading, and this program has made a huge difference. She's now reading above grade level. I use it for my kids' nightly reading for school. We love it, and it's super easy and quick to do. My kid, who just turned four years old and has been using the program since January of this year, can now read. Thank you so much, Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word KID to 323232 right now. It's fast and easy. Text KID to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text the word KID to 323232. Text KID to 323232.